This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the data deluge intensifies all across government. The head of the Chief Data Officers Council tells you how to deal with it. More jobs filled soon at the Pentagon, some expert insight on what the new team will face when it gets down to work. And the number one story of the week, the White House budget request hits Capitol Hill. Is it time for a break inside agencies or is the work just beginning? Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The head of the Chief Data Officers Council in the federal government's been at his post for about a year now. In that year, the council has laid the groundwork for the next 10 years of data management across government. Ted Kalk is the Chief Data Officer of the Department of Agriculture and Chair of the Federal CDO Council. Ted, welcome. It's good to see you again. What do you think the biggest accomplishments are of the council in its first year? Well, uh, Francis, first, it's, it's great to be with you. It's, it's been a foundational year for the council. Um, we really are focused on on leading transformational change. And uh, with the release of the federal data strategy, individual agencies were um, beginning to stand up their data governance boards, uh, establishing the CDO role for the first time, uh, supporting, assessing data and related infrastructure, and really identifying opportunities to increase staff skills. Um, uh, one of the major uh, kind of accomplishments that the council worked on initially was supporting agency operations in the pandemic. And this was an opportunity for us to collaborate really for the first time in a new role. So working with HHS to share data, to create uh, common decision-making tools that we then shared across agencies uh, was, was one really important opportunity that we uh, seized upon to begin to build our, our capacity and our collaboration. Uh, we're also working to uh, collaborate with our other evidence councils uh, and establishing working groups on data sharing, data inventorying, and data skills. So, for example, we just released uh, a, a list of 10 uh, data skills programs that are in place across agencies. For example, HHS uh, uh, CoLab, where they have a cohort-based data science training program, as well as the Air Force's data governance certification pilots, we're, we're using those case studies to build uh, our thinking about uh, what the needs are. We're also uh, releasing a survey this week that uh, uh, talks about the CDO profession and its uh, current state, you know, organizational reporting grades and areas of responsibility. Uh, and we've also got a couple of innovative projects underway where we're working on public common analysis automation uh, using the latest in natural language processing techniques. And we're going to be using that to uh, think about how we could scale some of those automation opportunities across agencies. So really, really good uh, collaboration in the first few months here. The case studies that you talked about, I think, are interesting. How will you evaluate those case studies to determine which one of them, which ones of them are working the best and which ones of them you want to try to scale? Well, I think first, you know, one, one of the things that we uh, set as a foundational kind of uh, collaboration point was that we know that there's good work that's going on in agencies and we want to use that to accelerate our efforts. So the, the case studies themselves uh, help us to, to monitor and to continue to have conversation about what's working and what, what areas are still kind of gaps for agencies, but they also invite conversations where agencies can learn from others. So uh, I, I don't think we have one in particular that we're, uh, that we're looking at, but I think there are 
a number of areas, whether that's analytics or governance or uh, or data science, where agencies are leading and other agencies have an opportunity to learn from them in, in the various aspects of our, of our data work. So uh, just look forward to continuing to monitor that and, and, and make improvements. I think also we're, we're focused on closing the gap with our skill sets. Uh, we worked uh, with the U.S. Digital Service to create the first uh, federal-wide data science hiring action, which was something that we launched uh, in terms of, uh, we had 60 opportunities across agencies uh, that folks could apply for, and uh, I'm really excited about a lot of the candidates that came in and how that's going to help to support agency mission. You talked about how you stood all of this up in the middle of the pandemic. Has the pandemic accelerated any of the things that the CDO Council wanted to do? Has it accelerated any of the elements of the federal data strategy for any reason? We're seeing stories all across government of people that are having to just do things a lot faster than they thought they would because of the differences in, in the way work gets done as a result of the pandemic. Has any of that affected the, the plan or the strategy that you and your colleagues are working on, Ted? Uh I, I think so. I think that the demand for for uh, quality data, for actionable data, for uh, decision support tools, uh, one for the council again provided us an opportunity to work across agency lines. It created the demand for that, uh, and so I think that 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 provided a good forcing function for us to do that kind of work. At USDA, certainly uh, those decision support tools were in high demand, uh, and uh, uh, questions around standardization on data sharing. Uh, and some of the challenges in our infrastructure, I think, were revealed as part of those lessons learned. So one of the projects we have ongoing this year is uh, is looking at how we share decision support across agencies. Uh, we have a, a federal-wide HR dashboard project we're working on, which is, again, looking at opportunities for us to, to share more broadly, uh, whether that's within HR for kind of ongoing operations or uh, in those in those use cases as in dur during the pandemic where you have an emerging need for agencies to have consistent data. So. I do think it was definitely an accelerant. In addition to the work that you're doing leading the CDO Council, you have your day job as the CDO at USDA. How are some of these things uh, hitting? How are some of these things falling inside USDA? What's the, the landscape look like as far as, as driving the goals of the Evidence Act and so on throughout your organization? I think um, one thing to kind of point to at the federal level, and it's, it's obviously translating to USDA, is uh, the Biden-Harris administration and their focus on on four overlapping crises again: the, the pandemic, economic recovery, climate change, and equity. So, if you look at the the executive orders that were published over the last uh, uh, several months, uh, many of them are, are unified by a call for better data management practices, skills, infrastructure. Uh, whether that is advancing racial equity, um, they've established a federal equitable data working group that's going to provide recommendations on inadequacies in federal data collection activities. So we have a lot of collaboration, both with USDA agencies and other agencies uh, like Census, looking at some of our challenges in the rural data. Uh, we're also building upon the work that we've done over the past several years to uh, uh, stand up enterprise uh, analytics services across the department. Uh, we've, we've talked about the dashboards many times in terms of uh, the speed to insight and, and the questions that we're able to answer. Uh, but the collaboration now on a, on a broader effort with uh, with data science tools uh, allowing collaboration and, and analysis of things with a with a growing skill set and and staff that are able to collaborate on questions across agency borders so this goes beyond the the 10,000 leaders that have access to those uh, those dashboards now we're looking at the the underlying infrastructure and how we build toward a common platform so 
more to come on that. Ted, we have about 30 seconds left. That data sharing that you're talking about will require better sharing among agencies, between agencies, not just within your agency. Is that getting better? The CDO Council and our collaboration with uh, our partners on, on the evidence uh, councils, evaluation officers, statistical officials, has really broadened and helped us to coordinate these efforts and really uh, helped us to uh, think about how we're going to implement this this broader evidence system over the next several years. So I do think it's been an accelerant, and we're looking forward to what happens this year. Ted Kalk, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thanks as always, Francis. Coming next, familiar faces in new places. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new team filling out the Pentagon's actually a team of veterans. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Christine Warmoth is officially the Secretary of the Army now after a blip in the radar screen on Wednesday. And three Biden administration nominees are closer to taking their seats in the Pentagon, too. Sharon Burke is senior advisor at New America. She's former assistant secretary of defense for operational energy plans and programs. Bill Greenwald is visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for industrial policy. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining me. Sharon, you first. Frank Kendall's nomination to be Air Force secretary got a lot of attention this week. We did not hear as much about the nominations of Heidi Hsu and Susanna Bloom. Why are their jobs important and why are they important people for the department right now, Susan, uh, uh, Sharon. So with Heidi Shu, it's really interesting. During her hearing, she talked a lot about the valley of death. And you know, in the commercial sector, we're talking about the valley between innovation and commercialization. But in recent years in the Department of Defense, it's been a valley between research and engineering and acquisition and sustainment, or between Ellen Lord and Mike Griffiths. So, Heidi Shu has to come in and figure out how to fix that because innovation is going to be absolutely key to the next administration. And she's the right person to do this. You know, she came out of the Army as the Chief Acquisition and RE, you know, Research and Engineering and Logistics uh, Executive, and has really deep experience in the private sector. By personality, too, she's known as just a, a a good manager and a good people person, and that's exactly what they need to cross that valley of death. Sharon, uh, Susanna Bloom at Cape, also a very important job. You know, I, I think back to when uh, Secretary Gates was in office and he had Christine Fox running Cape. Cape is one of those sleeper organizations that people outside the Pentagon don't know that much about, but it can really rule that building and, you know, and is the go-to place. Under Christine Fox, that's what it was. And I think you're going to see that again under Susanna Bloom. She is so smart and she's going to have like the scalpel and the hammer in her hands and wield them really well because this is going to be a very challenging budget environment to fund new programs and to, you know, to take a whack at legacy programs and keep Congress happy. And she's really a sharp customer. She'll do a great job in that job. Bill, welcome. It's great to see you. In addition yeah. to your time in the Pentagon, you're also a veteran of the Senate Armed Services Committee. These three nominees that we saw this week, your take, they're pretty much locked in for nomination or for confirmation, right? Yeah, I, I think they all three of them did the, the, the most important thing to do in the confirmation hearing, and that's not to make any mistakes. And they essentially got through that with flying colors. Uh, we don't see any other issues that are that are cropping up. So I think that uh, just have to take the time the way the Senate moves through for them to actually uh, uh, be, be finally confirmed. What do you see, Bill, as next on tap for the nomination process or for that committee in particular? Um, we 
talked uh, not too long ago, you and I did on this program about the basically the hold that Senator Reid, the chairman of the committee, put on the National Defense Authorization Act process for this exact purpose to get nominations through. No, I think there, the, the the issue is going to be um, the the process itself for nominating and 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 uh, getting through FBI background checks and all these things. You know, there, it's, it, it takes time, and uh, so uh, they've got some time right now to move through. They don't have the number of the, the, the nominations that they need, and so I assume at some point they're going to slip flip back into the NDA process and move forward. I want both of you to take me back into your processes, into your histories in the department. Sharon, you first. These three nominees, as Bill said, headed for confirmation. They'll go back to the building. They've all been there before. What's the first week like? What, what do you do to get yourself acclimated to, or what does one do to get oneself acclimated to being back in that environment, Sharon? Well, I think, as you said, all three of these nominees have very deep experience in the building. So it'll be easy for them to hit the ground running, as you say. Um, but, you know, the first thing they're going to do is get to know their teams and, and get up to date on the issues. And I think uh, for Ms. Bloom in particular, that should be easy because she's been helping out with some of these issues anyway. And for her, it's imperative because, of course, the budget's going to come out today. So her life is going to go crazy from the minute she sets a foot in that building. So I hope she's catching up on her sleep right now. Bill, what's your advice list for folks as not just these three nominees, but other folks as they head back to the building for the first time in a certain period of time? Um, try to read as much as possible before you get in there because you'll never have time to do that. And, and try to focus on uh, three things uh, and identify what those are before you go in, because those are probably the three things that you can actually try to get done. The rest of the time, you're gonna deal with what is put in place in front of you. Bill Greenwald, Sharon Burke, a wonderful conversation. Thanks very much as always for joining me today. I appreciate it. Great Thank to you. be with you. Coming next, the number one story of the week, those big budget request books for 2022 hit Capitol Hill straight ahead on Government Matters. Is it break time for financial managers in government or is the work just beginning? We'll be right back. Now, the number one story of the week, the White House budget request for fiscal 2022 features a $6 trillion spending plan. The top line numbers match the skinny budget the White House released in April. Tina Jonas is senior advisor in the International Security Program, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. Dave Mater is civilian sector chief strategy officer at Deloitte. He's former controller at the Office of Management and Budget. Friends, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. Tina, what are the first steps for government leaders after the release of this budget? When people get back to work Tuesday morning, what does this mean for the jobs that they'll do? Well, thank you. Uh, you know, this is a very hectic time. The key uh, matters ahead of them are obviously defending the budget request. Uh, they would particularly the budget officers are going to be on the Hill and talking to their counterparts uh, on the various committees defending this proposal. Um, this is uh, unprecedented amount of uh, uh, money uh, proposed in this budget and uh, a lot of legislation to be uh, acted on. So um, there's going to be a lot of activity, but I would expect a lot of days on Capitol Hill. Is it is symbolic and meaningful of anything, Tina, that some of the people in the Defense Department have already been to the Hill to start to talk about the budget, even though we didn't have a formal request from the White House yet? 
Well, uh, this is a continuing conversation. I mean, you, in any agency, there are uh, there's activity all year long around executing a previous budget, around building a budget, and defending a budget. So uh, communication is constant, and uh, I would imagine there's just going to be further intensity around the president's proposal. Dave Mater, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Take me back to your IRS experience. How much impact does the White House budget request have inside the agency? Does it make a difference as to what those leaders will do next week and next month and in the next several months? No, I mean, it, it's a significant uh, impact on how, you know, career executives and employees operate day in and day out. And I think more so now when you have a transition from one administration to another and a, you know, significant shift in policy direction that causes the agency to basically step back and look at what's been going on, you know, since the inauguration and starting to actually align their programs and align their investments and their actions around program priorities consistent with the Biden-Harris administration. So, you know, I think as Tina said, you know, the budget process is a year-round budget. It's not, you know, a once-a-year once a set of activities more so now with, with the transition to a new administration. Dave, given that we're here at the end of May, beginning of June, thinking about these issues, and Congress is starting to work theoretically when it comes back from the Memorial Day recess uh, to, to work through this budget on both sides of the Hill, a lot of people seem to think we're destined for another continuing resolution. What do you think uh, financial management leaders should be doing in the next month or so to plan for that uh, possibility? You know, I, I think, Francis, that we're so used to continuing resolutions over the last, you know, 15 years that, you know, agency executives, you know, are constantly prepared for the, you know, the potential that there will be, you know, a lapse in appropriation and a continuing resolution, whether it's, you know, a matter of weeks, months, or in some cases, you know, multiple months. So I don't, I don't view it as um, a significant new event for career executives and and i think those of us who have served in political positions you know recognize that that's sort of part of the process that you know basically has been ongoing for the last three administrations tina you mentioned a moment ago that the uh, time is coming or here for agency officials to go to the hill and defend the budgets what does that process look like behind the scenes i'm sure it's not just what we see uh, in public in the hearing process right Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, conversation. Uh, members of the administration and their staffs are bringing their justification books. They are uh, holding briefings with staff individuals uh, on the Hill and really going in depth on the budget. And so uh, they bring their knowledge, their experience, and hopefully a lot of details uh, that are discussed uh, hours and hours of work on the Hill. Tina, in your experience, what are the ways, the effective ways to change minds when you meet a member of Congress or members of Congress that have a different idea for the budget than someone in the department has? Well, I think the most important thing is just to be very detailed, be pre precise, uh, put forward and be tr transparent on, in your conversations. 
but i think the more you bring to the table the more detailed the more questions you are prepared to respond to and of course that takes years of experience and many people in the departments and agencies have had very thorough careers and know how to do this but being detailed being prepared in depth and with always with great integrity on defending your budget Dave what's what success have you found what techniques have you found successful in defending your budget and maybe changing minds on the hill or at least moving minds a little bit in the direction that the administration wants them to go I, I think over the years you know whether it was my time at IRS or my time at OMB in the Obama administration is basically understanding that you know the executive branch and the legislative branch are co-equals and understanding the interests of the members whether it's the same party different party house and senate and being able to as tina said not only to to justify the numbers but what's behind the numbers with regard to policy direction and having you know not only discussions around the numbers but also around the policy and the direction and why you know in the case of you know a change in administration you know why why are we shifting from one approach to another approach i mean numbers are the outcome of policy direction of an administration dave mater tina jonas excellent insight thanks very much for joining me today i appreciate your time thank you francis don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Remember our fallen heroes this weekend. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract 
to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again, and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.